This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I feel like, you know, white guys have, have not exactly set us down the right path and everything. And so maybe a little diversity is not just needed, but essential to our success. I think the same thing in tech, you know. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back to another episode of the Humane Podcast. My name is David Jakobovich, your host on Bridging the Gap of Humans and Machines. Today, our guest is Dr. J.T. Kostman. He's currently back from some exciting business trips throughout technology in the United States and currently leads as a managing director at Grant Thornton for their GT Labs. Thanks for joining us today, J.T. Oh, thanks for inviting me back. You know, I am so interested in trends and signals, and uh, I follow a lot in the media, but I don't always get to go to conferences. One of the big ones every year is CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. A lot of great technology there. Um, I know you've been there this year. Um, What are some of the things that you've seen going on in the consumer space? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of talk. Uh, 5G is the big buzz this year. Of course, people are talking still quite a bit about virtual reality. And quantum computing was uh, on everyone's lips. They were trying to make a splash for that. But, you know, what really struck me more than anything else, several people have asked me what really stuck with me from CES. And I was most struck by the fact that you see more diversity in the halls of the U.S. Congress than you see in the halls of CES. And we're getting better, but man, we're not there yet. 
So we just had our midterm elections, and a lot of the diversity is beginning to, it seems, happen in Congress, right? We had um, a lot of great candidates on the Democratic side of different genders, of different sexual orientations, of different religions, right? So we're seeing a lot of diversity happening. Are you saying that's not happening in tech? Well, I'm saying it's not happening in either. But, (laughs) you know, even when you look at this freshman class of these 100, it is without a doubt the most diverse freshman class Congress has ever welcomed. And I think that is such a wonderful thing, such a necessary thing. Uh, You know, someone asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, how many justices uh, did she think would be enough uh, uh, to be women? And she said, nine. (laughs) I feel like, you know, white guys have have not exactly set us down the right path and everything. And so maybe a little diversity is not just needed, but essential to our success. I think the same thing in tech, you know, when I look at the halls of who represents at CES, it used to be going back 10 years, 15 years ago, exclusively white males. And now you're seeing it has internationalized a little bit, certainly. You're seeing a more of a representation of women there, but uh, yeah, just not nearly enough. Uh, we pay lip service to some of these things, lip service to, we need more women in STEM, we need more people of color in in these occupations and these professions. But what does most industry do to truly accommodate, to truly welcome, to incentivize and to attract uh, uh, a more diverse and more heterogeneous population into tech? Uh, I don't think nearly enough. Uh, living in New York, I see a lot of diversity. Traveling to San Francisco, I don't see a lot of diversity. For the consumer who can't attend Consumer Electronics Show, but they watch it on Fox News and CNN and you know hear about the startups like Female Founders Fund and, and all these diverse leaders raising capital, I mean, is it really still such a small minority? Well, I think it is. And it's editorial selection, right? It's where you point the lens. But CES this year had, I think it was 180,000 people. And so when you're pointing at the five or six or 10 that you want to feature on the news, of course, you want to look for uh, an interesting, diverse population to be able to speak to. But, you know, again, I think it's gotten better, but we're not there yet. And we really need to start taking these things more seriously. I I would love to see showcasing some of these things. And and I, I... Honestly, I'm surprised by, with all the motion we've had with the Me Too movement, with Black Lives Matter, with um, the new law in California that requires all publicly traded companies based in California to have a woman on their board of directors, that as an industry technology, and I'm not pointing the finger at CES, I'm saying all of us in technology are still a little bit tone deaf. Uh, It's still predominantly white men who are in the seats of power who are attending these events, who are speaking about what they've done and what they've contributed, you don't see. And and I think we also need to think beyond the sort of quote unquote traditional concerns, right, of gender concerns, of ethnicity. We need to start talking about neurodiversity. We need to start talking about a difference of perspective. The I saw, uh, and I counted, I saw three people in wheelchairs out of 180,000 people. Now, I might not have seen everyone, but I darn well saw a pretty huge swath of the people who were there. And these are 
horribly underrepresented populations in the technology space. We just need to be a little bit more conscious of it. I think the underrepresentation goes beyond persons with disabilities and the aging population, but that those are two markets that are growing very fast as a result of living longer lives, uh, being able to have medicine to have people survive in what once would not be survivable conditions. And there are startups coming to the rescue there. I, I know you and I, we've blogged about these startups that are now creating prosthetic limbs that are helping others, you know, restore function. The question is how much of that is transferring over into AI startups and AI applications in supporting that mobility with diversity? You know, you you bring up a very good point and something I hadn't mentioned, but at CES and even the week before, I spent the week before in Silicon Valley, I also do some work with the Alchemist Accelerator, which one of the biggest accelerators, we're very conscious about attracting a diverse collection of entrepreneurs to come in and to pitch with us. But it strikes me that I met more people who had uh, Spanish as one of their primary languages in the 15 meetings I had with Alchemist Accelerator than I met at all of CES. Uh, you saw no signage in Spanish. You saw none of the representation there. And so here's another when you talk about fast growing uh, demographics, fast growing groups. How is that not wholly represented within technology? You know, one of the things we tend to breeze by is even the language that we use to package, to communicate, and to code in. It's all first language to. Well, not just English-speaking folks, but uh, people who tend to be of an American dialect and who are male and tend to look and sound a lot like me. And uh, I think, uh, again, I, I, I'm not a believer in attracting people just to be politically correct, just to be for the sake of. Uh, and I'm talking about something much deeper than the, the physical characteristics. I'm talking about cognitive diversity. And, you know, to your point, I, I uh, especially regarding things like prosthetic limbs and people who are disabled, I just put out a post for uh, a kid from, uh, uh, forgive me, I think it was from Costa Rica, and he built a prosthetic upper limb out of Legos. This kid is brilliant, obviously. This kid, I wrote, you know, uh, uh, Lego needs to send this kid to MIT. And if they don't, I will. Uh, here's an offer, you know, to that kid. If you don't get free ride, free tuition, call me. We'll figure something out. Uh, but CES and the industry needs to start promoting that, right? Here's a, a young kid who is tomorrow of technology. Uh, and and why not? Because he, what, is disabled? Because English isn't his first language or whatever the reason? I don't know. Um, but I think we have to be very conscious about trying to attract that much more, that greater breadth of minds. So where are we missing the mark with this cognitive diversity? I mean, you and I were both in leadership positions, hiring all the time, seeing candidates all across the aisle. But like, what's the missing piece? Well, part Native American. So the joke is, what do you mean we, Kimosabi? Because <laughs> I've been very conscious of it. I've hired more data scientists and AI researchers, probably more than just about anyone. I've hired over 650 uh, data scientists, analysts, AI 
researchers over the course of my career. And I have been remarkably uh, cognizant of being gender gender balanced, of thinking about uh, a difference of perspective from with respect to nationality, to upbringing, to uh, even things like first-gen college students. And that's not because I think I have a social moral responsibility, though I think I do. It's purely selfishly, because I find that diversity of thinking has really contributed in each of the organizations. And, And that's what we need to be able to better communicate. What we need to be able to better communicate to the rest of the field is this isn't something to do because it's the nice thing to do or because it's the polite or publicly correct thing to do. This is in your interest. Homogeneous organizations, ceteris paribus, cannot perform as well as one that has a greater breadth of thinking. You know, just a final side note on this. I, I read a report back in the late 90s by a group of Arab scholars, very brave Arab scholars, because they were chastising the Arabic world and saying, we will never realize our potential while we still subjugate half of our population and half of our brain power. And I thought, wow, uh, how absolutely true. By not giving women access, what they were doing was depriving themselves of these capabilities. The great paradox here for me, though, is I think some of the challenges we see right see now currently as a consequence of that perspective are what's going to self-heal us. And I think what's so interesting about what you bring up on brain power and diversity of cognitive thinking is it's going to start with humans training humans, in essence, to think diversity first, to have those mental models where they are aware of how can we be neutral so that we're doing the best for society but it's not enough for us to only, well, this is my question. Is it enough for us as humans to say, let's train other humans, or do we need to begin consider transferring these ethics into the machines we're working with as well? Well, let me give you an alternative perspective. Here's something to puzzle on for a little bit. Most artificial intelligence and machine learning has in its current incarnation, been coded by white men. I mean, that's simply the truth of it. And what have we taught it to do? Well, think about what virtually all artificial intelligence and machine learning does. What it does is it emulates humans in its best capacity, right? And so that's what we're looking for. It's it's not the magic or the dystopian nonsense they talk about in the movies. What we're really talking about particularly with narrow AI, is getting machines to be able to do what I can do. The operative word there is what I can do, because it's a bunch of white men teaching the machines to do what white men do and to emulate our same perspective. What's missing? And so as we're increasingly successful, as we start to replace more and more people with machines, what are we doing? We're actually not replacing the entirety of human beings, the entirety of all their capabilities, we're replacing those capacities that we have emulated through these machines, which means we're inevitably going to leave this desperate need for the things that make humans humans, and that's still unfulfilled. And so let me give you a very quick anecdote. You know, I was on the uh, phone the other day. Well, I I got a, a voicemail the other day, and I get this voicemail Uh, from my credit card company, I have a fraud alert. So I have to call in and figure out what's going on here with this fraud alert. 
And so I call up and the voicemail was very specific. I had to call immediately. My card wouldn't work anymore. You know, bolts of lightning had to come from the sky, whatever. So I call up and I am on, I get a voice recording and it says, please hold. And then it thanks me for my patience. And it thanks me for my patience every minute for 49 minutes. 49 minutes I'm waiting on hold. Finally, Vicky picks up. And Vicky is a delight, right? She's surly. She's snippy. She's angry. She doesn't even want to be on the call. Tells me, uh, confirms, is this you? Yes, it's me. Uh, did you order $140 worth of books from Pack Publishing? Yes, I did. Thank you. We're done. We're done. 51 minutes into the call. Now, I'm really hoping Vicky loses her jobs to a machine. I really am. But what aspects of that job need to go away? It's those things that could readily be replaced by a bot, by a chat bot, by a robot. What can't be replaced, right? Those things that make us quintessentially human. Empathy, uh, 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 caring, wisdom, perspective, equanimity, uh, patience, right? Well, patience the machines can have, but but those things that make us truly us. And so I think what we're going to start to see almost inevitably in very short order are machines replacing those aspects of human that when humans effectively try to pretend they're meat machines, those things can be better done by silicon than by carbon. Let the machines do it. Let us be left to be human. And what are those things that are going to be left with at the risk of, of categorizing it more of the feminine and less of the masculine, less of the emphasis on just on logic and orders and rules and more on caring, compassion and kindness. And so might some of this challenge that we're seeing be self-ameliorating? I don't know. You know, one phrase that I use often um, as we're moving into this age of acceleration is the humans, like you mentioned, that their jobs may be automated away. Well, are those humans being coming a part of Lost Generation 2.0? We had after World War One around then, you know, people going to war, coming back from war, a little hopeless, not sure where to go. I'm a little concerned, you know. White House is in disarray. CES is only old white men. I mean, what's happening? <laughs> well, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what's really happening is a lot of what we also saw, even over the last 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, think about pre the financial meltdown of 2008. Everyone was lamenting that an entire generation of the best brains on our planet were going into finance, right? Because that's where the money was. And so we saw people who should have been physicists and doctors and scientists and, and these ostensibly potentially great minds who were engaged in algorithmic trading and quantitative finance. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that, but think of all the professions that suffer, all the opportunity cost incurred by all these other professions. And so what we saw almost simultaneously, you know, I, I'm of a generation and I'm old enough to, that. well, let me take a side note as I'm saying that. I've had this weird life where I've met literally every president since Reagan. Uh, I've known kings and I've known royalty. I studied with Nobel laureates and Fields Medal recipients, far and away, bar none, absolutely. The smartest, wisest, most extraordinary human I've ever known is the woman I married. 
and my wife is a nurse. Uh, and she's an extraordinary nurse. She's been in the ICU now for, if I say it on the air, she'll kill me, but nearly 40 years. Still doing bedside care, still cares. She was meant to be a nurse. I truly believe that. But she didn't have a choice. When she was growing up, back when we were kids, 40 years ago, she could have been a nurse or a teacher or one of three or four other professions. She could have been a secretary right? There were very few things that were really, and I'm not saying there was a restriction that she couldn't have been an engineer or she couldn't have been a mathematician, but it certainly wasn't conducive for her to be. It certainly wasn't welcomed into those professions. Uh, as recently as a couple of years ago, right? The former president of Harvard was saying, well, women just aren't cut out for math. Really? Uh, <laughs> it's taken us a long time to grow up. And now we're shocked, shocked, I say, that we haven't yet achieved parity. Well, it's taking a little bit of time. And I don't think that we're yet wholly amenable and wholly open to this idea. And, and again, we're just talking about gender. Think about uh, multiculturalism. Think about one of my big drums that I pound is neurodiversity. I've had quite a few people working for me who are along the autism spectrum. And I find they tend to uh, at the risk of categorizing all people as if they're of a type or of a group. But the people that I've hired who have been on the autism have been extraordinary contributors. But what's the problem there? If I go to hire someone who is, even if they aren't profoundly autistic, if they have Asperger or manifest symptoms uh, uh, similar to Asperger's syndrome, well, what happens? In most organizations, when I try to hire them, they first have to go through that hoop of HR. And what is HR assessing? They're not assessing technical fit. They can't. So they're assessing cultural fit. Well, really? Uh, the two problems with that is, of course, these folks who have a, a, a neurodiverse perspective are not going to fit into that common mold. But the bigger problem is, is that really what I want? You know, the death knell of any organism is homogeneity. Look at the uh, uh, royal family in England. <laughs> we don't necessarily want everyone to be alike or to think alike. You know, uh, contrary to popular belief, great minds don't think alike. And, and we need to start being more cognizant of that. And thinking on you know, neurodiversity is many um, aspects, but if we're thinking on culture, I mean, is is culture when I'm hiring, oh, you need to like yoga too. You should like free lunch. You want to drink beer with the boys. I mean, is that what we need? Or it sounds like that's a whole separate argument on how hiring practices can be changed to think about, you know, making truly neurodiverse cultures. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that's a great point. And I think it's something we really need to give a lot more thought to. Is it really saying, oh, we have frozen yogurt and, and you know, a foosball table? That's not culture, right? And that's not making a culture more conducive, uh, because it, effectively what you're doing is, again, you're stereotyping. You know, I, w one of the words that gives me hackles, gets the hackles on the back of my neck standing up, uh, and I have threatened to actually smack marketers if they use the phrase millennial. I hate that word. Really? We're going to say everyone between the ages of 18 and 35, they're the same. <laughs> Nothing else matters. Doesn't matter where they're from. Doesn't matter the gender, their sexual orientation, their interests, their dispositions. No, no, they're a millennial. Really? Uh, and we do that with 
I, just for the sake of uh, uh, cognitive heuristic, because it's a shortcut, because it's easier, we talk about moms and Minnesotans and you know people of this or that group and millennials as if they're all of a type. And I think we really got to get over that. And that speaks to your point when we're talking about the benefits. Why tell everyone we're having liver and onions for dinner? Or instead of that, now let's say, okay, well, everyone we're having you know, rotisserie chicken because everyone would like that. Why not start giving people a buffet? Why not start giving people a menu? Uh, when I was uh, uh, recently, when I was chief data officer at Time Inc., quite literally, this was one of our questions that we wrangled with was snacks. And uh, we wanted to make free snacks available to everyone, but we realized, you know what? That's not an easy thing. There are people who are uh, what turned out to be gold for us were the bananas. Don't get me started. I have no idea why, but people would flock in to get the bananas. But we had popcorn and we had candy and we had these things. And, you know, it may sound trivial, superficial, but there are other organizations that are saying, well, maybe we should make them pay for the coffee. Really? It's so interesting that we're talking about snacks and the data <laughs> science around food. And well, we are naturally social creatures, social creatures with this empathetic um, predisposition to connect with each other. And um, but we're not always seeing that connection. Uh, a story I'll share is that my dad's an electronic engineer by trade. He's he's worked in this industry for over 40 years and decided to take a new breath of life moving into data, but data for electronics. And when he started that journey, he retired, he sold his company. He's saying, I, I'm ready to, to do this and started learning the code. And, you know, at the end of the day, as he started this interview process, my dad said to me, I kind of wish I was maybe born 40 years later. Like I love everything I did and and stuff, but like, I'm just not quick enough or fast enough or all these lies that we tell ourselves. And, um, and, and I was telling my dad, I said, I mean, you're brilliant. I mean, like the amount of experience you have for how you're able to work with schematics and robots. I mean, these are things that kids out of college just can't get. And so I think part of that neurodiversity conversation is also, you know, how valuable are the former CEOs and, um, those with decades of experience. I think that's absolutely right. And and to your point, what I find fascinating is there's a phenomenon in psychology known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And effectively, uh, the contention is, for most people, if not all people, they would contend, we tend to think we're much smarter and much more capable than we are. I find that's inversely related to brain power. You know, I find the smartest people I talk to tend to engage in a little self-doubt or more than a little self-doubt, right? We tend to call our own capabilities and competence into question. Uh, you know, I was guilty of that myself not too long ago. I was having a, a conversation with a couple of friends and my my very long-term colleague, uh, Armand Anwar, who's worked with me since, I think the first tech we worked on together was the wheel. And uh, he uh, he happens to uh, have uh, uh, fairly profound dyslexia. But as a consequence, he has to attend more to the code he writes. And so he is far and away the best coder I've ever read. Uh, uh, this is weird to admit, but I will still occasionally print out code that he's written and carry it with me 
uh, because it's so elegant, it's sublime. He can do in five lines what would take me 50, 500. And so I made the point, I was just teasing with him. And I said to him that, to one of our friends when he was there, that he codes like Hemingway. And he said, you know, of me that I code like a hamster on heroin, which is probably true. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he reminded our friend, uh, I have some skills. I bring some gifts to bear. So it's very much like your dad, right? It's not a competition. It's not that we all have to be the best at every aspect of what we do. And I think that goes back to the larger question of how we're going to get along more effectively with machines. Uh, I've been advancing this notion of what I call symbiotic, uh, symbiotic with an H, symbiotech, right? So how do the people and the machines partner most effectively? How do we take this almost transhumanist perspective of how do we work symbiotically, symbiotically uh, with the machines so that both of us end up being able to do better? So in this new age of acceleration, uh, it's still just beginning, but how can consumers be part of this conversation? How can we have this uh, symbiotech? Well, I, that is the question to ask, and as coincidence would have it, uh, I'm launching a new initiative in the very near future that uh, we've titled The Great Tech Debates, and I'm going to be inviting uh, all the great thinkers to have these conversations, and by great thinkers, I don't necessarily mean the people you meet in the media and in the news and you read, I mean that citizenry. I mean those consumers. I want to hear from them. I want to include their voices in these conversations and not just uh, a one-way dialogue. I don't want them just to submit questions. We're going to create a forum, a mechanism to be able to bring this to the fore. You know, we, we started out our conversation today talking about politics. And I think some of the things that these have in common I want us to return to a time when we can have civil discourse, when we can disagree without being disagreeable, when we can talk about these important issues. You know, we have evolved this ethos very regrettably over the last, not two years, over the last 20 years, the last 30 years, where you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics. Why? Uh, why do we have this inhibition? We should talk about these things. And we should certainly talk about technology. We should talk about the implications, applications, ramifications. What about data privacy? What about the trolley problem? If the car, self-driving car is going to a group of children or it can go into a wall and kill you, what should it do? What are the economic implications of artificial intelligence and the impact that will have on jobs? Those shouldn't be questions. We just let them solve. We are them. We need to all engage in these conversations. And I think that dialogue starts with having that dialogue. I, uh, in 2018, had the chance to work with a client in Europe, and I was in Scotland. And there, when I was working with these big financial institutions, we had very dynamic conversations, very transparent about staffing and, and the religion and the politics and the government and Brexit and all these interesting things. But it was very open-ended and it was very civil and it was very, you know, this is things we need to consider. These are our contingencies. In my experience in the United States, when I've attempted to have some of these conversations, <laughs> it's like all hell breaks loose. It's like, you know, well, light the White House on fire. I'm yeah, like, did I mention these are going to be moderated? conversations by yours truly, right? I will. My job is to maintain decorum. 
to make sure that we respect one another, that we're able to allow everyone to lend voice. But almost more importantly than that, that we listen. And that's one of the great arts that's been lost. We need to re reclaim the ability to actually hear other perspectives, other attitudes, other beliefs. And, you know, looking towards those other attitudes and beliefs, is there any against the grain viewpoints that you hold on AI and new tech signals that you think consumers should think more about to listen to? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm Mr. Contrarian, you know. Um, well, I'm working on an article now that uh, I may have to change the title, but it's currently tentatively titled 18 Reasons Why When It Comes to AI, Elon Musk is Full of Crap. Uh, and I may have to change it to 24 reasons because I just keep coming up with more reasons. Uh, because all that stoking, that dystopian fears and nonsense, ugh, it's just absurd. Worrying that AI is going to become Skynet and kill us all, please. I, I just published a little piece where I made the point that you're in far, far, far more danger from your toaster, which by the way, toasters are scary. It turns out I was doing the research, toasters kill about 400 people in the US every year. Last uh, year, I'll tell you this. So um, my parents had a Black & Decker toaster <laughs> in Florida. And this toaster, my dad put the toast in, the regular ritual in the morning, the coffee, the toaster, go out, take the dog, the whole thing, and put the timer on. The timer broke on a toaster. The toaster caught fire. He got back and almost burned down the kitchen. You no, know, I'm telling you, man, the toasters, it's rise of the toasters. The toasters are coming for us. The toasters are going to come get us. But you know what? I mean, it's more likely that would happen than AI is going to run amok and, and kill us all. It's just not going to happen. And so we need to stop worrying about silly things. Uh, let's take that same energy and worry about climate change. Thank you very much. Let's worry about uh, how joblessness is already impacting such a large segment of the population. But even when it comes to things like uh, the economic implications of artificial intelligence, you know, we need to start worrying about what that impact will be. But we also, at the same time, need to not just worry about the employee. You know, that, that example I gave you of Vicky with customer service, everyone's worried that Vicky will be out of a job. Why isn't anyone worried about the customer or the company? that isn't being sufficiently served, right? Think about how many small businesses are threatened, mid-sized businesses, by these tech, few tech giants, a handful of companies that are uh, introducing these sort of uh, talent oligopanies where they're gobbling up all the talent and you can only end up working for one of the FANG or the Fortune 50. Uh, or these fortunate few companies that have the resources to be able to pull those capabilities. And so all these small and mid-cap companies are suffering as a consequence. We need to democratize that talent more. That leads us to worry about things like immigration and writing that uh, once again, or getting back on a path where the U.S. becomes uh, a magnet to the best and the brightest of the world. In, at the same token, we have to worry about educating uh, our kids. Uh, right now, our scores in uh, uh, mathematics, in science, and technology, and reading are below that of, I think we're at something like 26th or 28th in the world. It's humiliating. The, we shouldn't be there. And we need to start taking these things a lot more seriously. You know, it's an old Chinese proverb I love. 
uh, says the best time to plant a tree was 100 years ago. The second best time is now. We need to start thinking that way. And now is that time. And particularly in New York, we can see some of that happening. For example, you know, with the current administration, everything was put on hold with H-1Bs and, you know, these visas and international talent. And New York, against administration, launched the Into NYC program, which has just kicked off in 2019. It's going on for about three months to basically say, if you're an international researcher, if you want to get involved in startups, you can come to New York. Cooney and the city will sponsor you and you can come in with an H-1B. So I think those conversations are starting. Um, It's just being maybe brave enough to have those conversations. And I think that's exactly right. That's one of the things I'll agree with you 100%. We have a dearth of guts. We have a dearth of bravery. We we saw, uh, and, and shockingly, this tends to begin more in the private sector than in the public sector. We have seen CEOs who have stood up and said, you know, enough. Uh, um, Apple, uh, uh, Microsoft, um, uh, Netflix, several of their leadership have come to the fore and said, you know what, uh, we, we need to stand up and we need to say what's right. Uh, walking out on the administration's uh, business council, uh, even in the early days of the administration, I thought it was a very brave move. But we don't see that uh, within the halls of Congress to the extent that we're going to need to. We need to see representatives, and we'll see. You know, uh, we we just elected a new representative from uh, Queens in the Bronx, uh, District uh, Eleven, uh, Congressman Congresswoman Cortez, uh, and we'll see uh, if we're going to start to shake some things up. And I think that that entire new class of one, uh, uh, the new class of 2019, hopefully, will affect some change, but. We're going to see. But really what it comes down to is we have to stop abrogating our responsibility to the leaders of the tech companies, to the politicians, and we have to start realizing that we truly, truly are not just the power. We are the government. We are everything in this country. We're we're incredibly blessed to have that opportunity here. We need to take advantage of that and take it seriously. And, you know, to take it seriously, but also as if we had a time machine to go back. So let's say you were a consumer, you were non-technical, this is back in your days of figuring it all out, but it's 2018 all over again. I mean, what advice would you give for yourself, JT, on a career path or what you should start doing? Yeah. um, Well, H.G. Wells once said that statistics will be as uh, important to a modern education as reading and writing were to the previous generations. I would say the same thing about coding. Uh, Every citizen needs to know how to code, period, the end, full stop. You at least need to know how to think computationally, to think algorithmically. And by the way, lest anyone's afraid of it, uh, I've taught people the basics, the essence of what they need to know to code in five minutes. It's really that simple. Uh, we, we tend to make the whole cottage industry about making it seem as if it's complex because people can charge you money for it, I guess. But it's really not that hard to learn. But you need to be able to take those things on. Um, the other advice I would give people is, uh, and the younger me, which fortunately is it's advice that I had taken, is follow your passions in, in these arenas. You know, technology is going to 
change fundamentally change the world and every aspect of it. And if that's the case, what are you interested in and pursue and do that? You know, if it's medicine or if it's uh, uh, ending world poverty or fighting climate change, that's terrific. But if it's just entertaining people, there's nothing wrong with that. If it's just, uh, quote unquote, just uh, helping people make more money, that's absolutely fine. But too many of us get caught up in the supposed to and the have tos uh, and not enough in, in what really enriches our lives. It's a good time to entertain people on Twitch. Is it a good time to entertain people on Twitch with code? That might be the question. Mm. Well, you know, that's that's my thing. That's my spiel. It should be edutainment, right? This, by the way, think of, well, my some of my favorite authors currently, uh, I, I'm, of course, like most of the people listening, I love Malcolm Gladwell. Why do you love Malcolm Gladwell? Why do you love Dan Brown? Completely different genre. Uh, why do you love some of the, you know, some of these authors because they're teaching you something along the way. They're not just entertaining you, they're edutaining you. And I think that's going to increasingly become the watchword, more and more of us. And frankly, why are people listening to the uh, to this podcast right now and to us? To learn a little something and hopefully to get a smile or to make them feel something along the way as well. That's right. And, you know, all our listeners appreciate having you on here. And thank you, Dr. JT Kosman, JT, for being with us here today on the Humane Podcast. Looking forward to bridging the gap with you for Humans and Machines. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.